Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, January 31st, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. 59 are killed in a mosque attack in Pakistan. The British Army is accused of spying on lockdown critics. Russia claims control over nine Zaporizhia villages. A watchdog blames Syria for the alleged 2018 chlorine attack in Douma. TikTok's CEO is set to testify before U.S. Congress. U.S. officials say Israel was behind a weekend drone attack on Iran. U.S. arms left in Afghanistan are reported to be surfacing in Kashmir. Trump kicks off his presidential campaign in New Hampshire and South Carolina. Utah bans gender reassignment health care for transgender minors. New Zealand braces for more flooding. And officials in Australia hunt for a missing radioactive capsule. Our top story, tragedy in Pakistan as a blast in a Peshawar mosque kills 59. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Al Jazeera, CNN, BBC News, Independent, and Axios. Pakistani officials confirmed that a suicide bomber attacked a crowded mosque inside a police compound in Peshawar, Pakistan, near the Afghan border on Monday, killing at least 59 people and wounding more than 150 others, mostly police officers. The blast caused the building's ceiling to collapse, leaving an unknown number of people buried under the rubble. Peshawar's police chief said that the mosque's main hall was nearly at full capacity, around 300 people at the time of the explosion. Two officials for the Pakistan Taliban, officially known as Tariq-e-Taliban, or TTP, released statements claiming the blast was revenge for the death of TTP fighter Khalid Khorasani last year. Pakistani Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif, who traveled to Peshawar to visit the scene, said, Terrorists want to create fear by targeting those who perform the duty of defending Pakistan. The TTP has a strong presence in Peshawar, the capital of Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province, and the city has been the scene of frequent militant attacks, especially since November, after the group ended its ceasefire with government forces. A suicide bomber targeted a Shiite mosque in Peshawar last March, and a Pakistan Institute for Conflict and Security Studies report stated that in 2022 alone, Pakistan witnessed 376 terror attacks, in which 533 people were killed. Thank you for the facts, Scott. During this podcast, we extract the spins from the facts, and the first spin for this story is a narrative A coming from the dispatch. In a cruel twist of fate, Pakistan is under threat from a group they once vocally supported in their fight against the U.S. Afghanistan has failed to take steps against the TTP, and Pakistan is helpless against insurgents launching attacks from their Taliban-controlled neighbor. They have reaped what they've sown with regards to support for rogue terror groups. More innocent civilians are being victimized as a result of this foreign policy blunder. And Narrative B comes from Indian Express. The situation with Afghanistan and their support or indifference to attacks originating from their country is a reality that cannot be wished away. It would be foolish to disengage with Kabul over the security situation, as it's clear that a solution can only come from cooperation between the two nations. Pakistan will continue the fight against insurgents the best it can. While there is a disappointment that Afghanistan is not taking measures against militant groups, Pakistan's fight is against the TTP, not Afghanistan. 
what sorts of measures and preparations one has to make participating in a suicide bombing. I mean, can you imagine oh, the pressure and God. just trying to psych yourself up, knowing what's going to happen? I mean, in a way, I admire someone who can have that kind of, I know it sounds awful, but there's something to admire about someone with that kind of, uh, that kind of resolve. But at the same point, I, I imagine they think something else is going to happen. Like they, they're going to get reward in the afterlife right. or, or something like that. Yeah. Where's the payoff? Uh, yeah. I mean, cause you can't take it with you. Right. Believe me. Uh... <laughs> Want to help us improve the news? Go to improve the slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. In our next story, a special report saying that the British army spied on lockdown critics. Here are the facts as agreed upon by telegraph daily mail, big brother watch, and Yahoo News. The United Kingdom Ministry of Defense's 77th Brigade, which works to counter disinformation and other online activity deemed harmful to the UK, was reportedly used during the pandemic to monitor public social media posts criticizing the government's official COVID response. According to a whistleblower who worked for the brigade during the lockdowns, the unit, whose goal is to deploy non-lethal engagement to adapt to behaviors of adversaries, went beyond the scope of foreign enemies and spied on British citizens. The MOD allegedly compiled dossiers on public figures, including former minister David Davis, who questioned the modeling behind death toll predictions, and journalists Peter Hitchens and Toby Young before passing the information to Downing Street. The leaked documents, first given to the civil liberties group Big Brother Watch and then to the Daily Mail, also included similar schemes by the Cabinet Office's Rapid Response Unit and Department for Digital, Culture, Media, and Sports Counter Disinformation Unit. In response, the government said these disinformation units, quote, did not target individuals or take any action that could impact anyone's ability to discuss and debate issues freely. Though the government did flag such posts and issue direct rebuttals from other sources. Downing Street said it had since scaled back the unit's work. Though Silky Carlo of Big Brother Watch has called for it to be, quote, suspended immediately. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We have a establishment critical narrative on this story from Telegraph. The speech the military targeted wasn't inaccurate, only inconvenient to the government's authoritarian pandemic plans. The MOD took resources typically used for psychological warfare against foreign enemies and turned them against the British people. Academics, journalists, and politicians who simply Questioned the ethics of COVID restrictions were treated like enemy combatants. This is full-on 1984. And a pro-establishment narrative coming from Yahoo News. The claims made in this report are serious, which is why the government will conduct a serious investigation into the matter. That being said, it should be emphasized that the disinformation units discussed here were not in the business of censorship, only providing reliable alternative sources to the claims made on certain public health-related posts. Turning the page to day 341 of the conflict in Ukraine, Russia claims control over nine villages in Zaporizhia. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by TASS, the Institute for the Study of War, Ukraine Forum, President Zelensky's website, and The Guardian. Russian forces have taken control of nine villages in the southern Zaporizhia region, a pro-Russia official in the local administration claimed on Sunday. The enemy has been driven out of nine villages in exploratory attacks, and these villages have been taken under control, Vladimir Rogov said. The names of the villages were not identified, and the claims could not be independently confirmed. 
However, in its latest assessment, the Institute for the Study of War, a U.S. military think tank, suggested sizable Russian gains in the Zaporizhia region. Meanwhile, extensive Russian attacks continued to be recorded in Ukrainian-controlled territory of the neighboring Kherson region. Ukrainian officials said three civilians were killed and 11 more were injured in Russian attacks over the past day. In Donetsk, where heavy fighting continues across the region, Ukrainian officials reported that one civilian was killed and one more was injured. One civilian was also recorded killed and three more were injured in the Kharkiv region. Russian attacks were also recorded in the regions of Sumy and Mykolaiv without reports of civilian casualties. Meanwhile, Ukrainian President Zelensky urged Western partners to speed up the delivery of weapons to Ukraine. The speed of supply has been and will be one of the key factors in this war, Zelensky said. We must speed up the events, speed up the supply, and opening of new necessary weaponry options for Ukraine. Elsewhere, in a BBC documentary that aired on Monday, former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson claimed that Russian President Putin threatened the UK with a missile strike. He sort of threatened me at one point and said, Boris, I don't want to hurt you, but with a missile, it would only take a minute, or something like that, Johnson said. Responding to the allegation, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov described Johnson's remarks as a lie. Thank you, Scott. As we look at the three spins that have been extracted from this story, beginning with an anti-Russian narrative coming from Washington Post. Arming Ukraine is crucial to help maintain Ukraine's electricity, heating, and water infrastructure as well as fend off Russia's systematic missile attacks. The clock is ticking loudly. It's time for Ukraine to arm up to win back its territory. Powerful tanks, both M1 Abrams and Leopard 2 and F-16 fighter jets, could turn the tide of a war that has threatened to descend into a prolonged stalemate. And the pro-Russia narrative comes from Al Jazeera. It's no secret that Ukraine's war effort would have collapsed long back without the West's support. The 11-month-long Western intervention now threatens to escalate the Russia-Ukraine conflict into an all-out direct war between NATO and Russia. The move to arm Ukraine with modern offensive weapons is extremely dangerous and takes the conflict to a new level of confrontation. Finally, a nerd narrative saying that there's a 2% chance that Ukraine will officially recognize a former Ukrainian territory, Luhansk, Donetsk, or Crimea, as independent before 2024. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. In our next story, according to a special report, Syria is responsible for the 2018 Duma chlorine attack. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, BBC News, Sky News, Al Jazeera, and WikiLeaks. The Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, or OPCW, the world's chemical weapons watchdog, released a report on Friday blaming the Bashar al-Assad-led Syrian Air Force for the alleged April 2018 chlorine attack in the city of Douma. Investigators allege that at least one helicopter of the Syrian elite Tiger Forces unit dropped two cylinders containing toxic chlorine gas on two apartments in a civilian-inhabited area nearly five years ago, killing 43 individuals and affecting dozens more. They stated there were more, quote, reasonable grounds to reach this conclusion after examining 70 environmental and biomedical samples, 66 witness statements, and other data, including forensic analysis, satellite images, gas dispersion modeling, and trajectory simulations. The watchdog claims to have carefully assessed alternative theories for what happened, but rejected all of them, including serious claim that the attack was staged and bodies of people killed elsewhere in Syria were taken to Duma. 
Using chlorine as a weapon is banned under the Chemical Weapons Convention, which Syria ratified in 2013, two years into the war, as well as under customary international humanitarian law. Syria has rejected the report as false, claiming it lacks scientific proof. The Duma case has faced controversy, with the OPCW previously being accused by former employees of altering its findings. According to leaked material, the original investigation found some symptoms were, quote, not consistent with exposure to chlorine containing choking or blood agents and failed to detect organophosphorus nerve agents. It further concluded the cylinders were more likely manually placed than dropped from great heights. This was omitted from the final 2019 report. Thanks for those frightening facts, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative on this story from the Daily Mail. Nearly five years after the Assad government carried out this atrocity to regain control of the eastern Ghouta suburbs of Damascus, international investigators have finally assigned blame for it. While a good first step, there's a long way to go to hold those responsible accountable for their crimes, as Moscow has blocked efforts to launch an international criminal court investigation in Syria. And the gray zone is giving us an establishment critical narrative. It was predictable that the OPCW would, at some point, blame Syria for the so-called Duma chemical attack after it had engaged in evidence suppression and excluded key investigators in previous reports. Once a technical monitoring body, the organization has been corrupted to serve Western interests against Damascus by validating unfounded allegations. And we have another nerd narrative. This one says there's a 45% chance that three mainstream American news outlets will report that a rebel group perpetrated the 2013 Gouda chemical attack by August of 2033, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Eric, on TikTok, I watch these videos of people cleaning their vegetables with this kind of thing you throw in your sink. I looked up what this is because I'm intrigued. You know, I like getting my vegetables clean. Right. Apparently, this thing releases ozone gas, like O3, and something about the way ozone mixes with water. It can clean your vegetables. The only thing is, if the thing actually released enough ozone to clean your vegetables, it would kill you as well. Oh, wow. So so basically, it just releases bubbles in your water and does nothing. Oh, yeah. And, 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 the, and if it did work, you wouldn't want it to work. So You know, there's a lot of interesting stuff on TikTok. In our next story, TikTok CEO will appear before the U.S. Congress. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Reuters, CNBC, Fox News, and Axios. TikTok CEO Xiaozi Chu will appear before the U.S. Energy and Commerce Committee on March 23rd. The hearing comes amid concerns among U.S. officials that TikTok shares American users' data with the Chinese Communist Party. The committee's chair, Representative Kathy McMorris-Rogers, Republican of Washington, Confirmed the testimony on Monday as the House Foreign Affairs Committee plans to vote on a bill that would ban TikTok in the United States. McMorris Rogers said in a statement that ByteDance-owned TikTok has knowingly allowed the ability for the Chinese Communist Party to access American user data. She added that Americans deserve to know TikTok's impact on their privacy. TikTok says it never shared any data with the Chinese government and has proposed a plan to store its data on American users in separate U.S.-based servers. Its plan would also grant the U.S. oversight over its algorithms, specifically the U.S. Department of the Treasury's Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. TikTok has already spent $1.5 billion to revamp its U.S. operations and argues that the oversight granted to the Treasury Department's committee would ensure U.S. user data would not be accessible to its Chinese parent company or the CCP. 
On February 27th, a new law banning TikTok on federal government employees' work devices is set to become official. Over a dozen states have issued similar bans for state government use, while some large U.S. universities have banned TikTok from their Wi-Fi networks. Those were the facts, and here are the spins. The first one is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Colorado Congressman Ken Buck's website. TikTok is a dangerous platform that is an immense threat to both U.S. national security and everyday privacy. The incredibly popular app is directly tied to the PRC and gives a foreign adversary alarming access to Americans' personal data. Banning TikTok is the only way to prevent China from potentially accessing and abusing Americans' data. And we have an establishment-critical narrative from TechDirt. Efforts to ban TikTok are unserious performances that are divorced from reality or any recognition of how to protect U.S. consumers. TikTok is one of a handful of extremely large apps that generate an endless supply of user data, yet TikTok is the only generous one because it was created in China. Instead of a publicity stunt, lawmakers should focus on meaningful ways to prevent and regulate the overcollection of data by big tech companies. In our next story, according to a special report, officials say Israel launched a drone attack on an Iranian facility. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, Reuters, Times of Israel, Al Jazeera, Arab News, and Middle East Eye. According to senior U.S. intelligence officials, Israel's national intelligence agency Mossad was responsible for a drone attack on an Iranian military facility in the city of Isfahan on Saturday which resulted in a large explosion and prompted an investigation by Iranian officials. Iranian state media released footage showing a flash in the sky and emergency vehicles at the scene. The Islamic Republic said it had intercepted drones that struck a military industry target and claimed there were no casualties or serious damage, but this couldn't be independently verified. Israel's Channel 12 reported that the site was a weapons production facility for Iran's Shahid-136 drones. The news channel also said the attack drones were launched from an area near the site by highly skilled operators who knew their target well. Tehran condemned the drone attack as a cowardly act aimed at creating insecurity in the country. Lawmaker Hossein Mirzai said on state TV that there was a strong speculation that Israel was responsible for the attack. There was no immediate response available from Israeli authorities. The alleged Israeli drone strike on Iran is the first known attack since Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu returned to office, leading the most right-wing government in Israel's history. Mikhailo Podolyak, a senior aide to Ukraine's president, linked the targeting of the Iranian weapons production facility to the ongoing war in Ukraine, accusing Iran of supplying Russia with hundreds of killer drones. According to U.S. officials, however, the attack was in response to concerns about Israel's own security. All right. Thanks for running down the facts, Eric. This pro-Iran narrative spin comes from the Tehran Times. This cowardly attack was nothing more than an attempt by Israel to stir up insecurity in Iran, all while distracting from its own internal problems and heightening violence with Palestine. Having faced numerous such attacks from Israel in the past, however, Iran was fortunately well prepared to defend itself. An anti-Iran narrative is coming from Jerusalem Post. Though Iranian media want to pretend that the strike was a failure, a mix of Western intelligence sources and foreign sources have reported that it was a major success against the Islamic Republic. Iran will not be allowed to continually stir terror and violence throughout the region, and Israel will make sure that its influence is kept in check. And we have an establishment-critical narrative from al Mayadeen. 
Though Western media have focused on a failed drone attack against an Iranian defense industrial complex, the Israeli strike only hours later that destroyed an Iranian convoy on the Syrian-Iraqi border loaded with food and medicine was completely ignored. Limited strikes like these will not end the resistance to the U.S. and Israel's imperial exploits in the Middle East. And finally, the Metaculous Prediction community is giving us a nerd narrative, saying there's a 51% chance that Iran will recognize Israel before the year 2070. Mark that on your calendar, Scott. Jeez, 51%. I like those odds. Yikes. <laughs> That's too There's glib. only a 50% chance it will make it that far. And then there's like a 40% chance that no one's going to be alive. Exactly. I mean, you look at the news. doomsday clock, we're 19 seconds away from God. Armageddon. I know. And yet another report claims that U.S. arms left in Afghanistan are now surfacing in Kashmir. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, the Tribune of India, DW, and Voice of America. NBC News reported on Monday that authorities in Indian-controlled Kashmir have claimed that militants allegedly trying to annex the region for Pakistan are carrying M4s, M16s, and other U.S.-made arms and ammunition left behind by U.S. and NATO forces during the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Most of the weapons recovered are said to be from Jaish-e-Muhammad, J-E-M, or Lashkar-e-Taiba, L-E-T, both Pakistan-based militant groups that the U.S. designates as terrorist organizations, but Indian officials deny that they could change the balance of power in the 30-year conflict. This comes as the U.S.-backed Afghan government reportedly possessed more than $7.1 billion in military equipment, mostly ground vehicles, when it fell to the Taliban in August 2021 with over 316,000 weapons worth almost $512 million, plus ammunition and other accessories, abandoned. Indian news outlet The Tribune asserted on Friday that sources in the Indian government had accused Pakistan's intelligence agency of buying such weapons from the black market to support militants in Punjab and Kashmir. Reports that high-tech U.S.-made weapons and equipment were smuggled from Afghanistan to Kashmir were first confirmed in February 2022, following video footage showing militants carrying M4 carbine rifles, M249 automatic rifles, M1911 pistols, 509 tactical guns, and satellite phones. Meanwhile, rumors have recently spread that Moscow asked the Taliban for help as it seeks to resupply its military forces in Ukraine, a claim that Kabul has denied and the White House has failed to confirm. Thank you, Scott. The first spin that has been separated from this story is a Republican narrative coming from Town Hall. This is a direct consequence of the Biden administration allowing the Taliban, a terrorist organization, to get a hold of billions of dollars worth of high-tech military hardware, including aircraft and vehicles. Biden and the rest of the Democrats continue to obfuscate their failings and avoid taking responsibility for their blunders. And the Democratic narrative comes from CNN. Though the U.S. was forced to leave behind a sizable amount of equipment, most of it was either rendered inoperable before the end of the withdrawal or is unusable without technical maintenance and spare parts. Plus, the figure of $7 billion is less than half of the total $18.6 billion worth of equipment provided to Afghan forces since 2005. And there's a nerd narrative for this story coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. It says there's an 88% chance that Pakistan will recognize the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan before the year 2030. In our next story, Donald Trump kicking off the 2024 campaign with stops in South Carolina and in New Hampshire. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Fox News, Associated Press, and New York Times. 
Former U.S. President Donald Trump on Saturday made the first two appearances of his 2024 presidential campaign, speaking to hundreds of people in New Hampshire and South Carolina. In New Hampshire, which was the first primary Trump won on the way to the presidency in 2016, the former president addressed party leaders and elected officials at the state's annual GOP meeting. In South Carolina, Trump was flanked by Republican Governor Henry McMaster and U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham at the State House, where he told an audience of party leaders that he's more angry now and more committed now than ever before. Prior to Saturday, Trump had kept a low profile since announcing his run in November. On his social media platform, Truth Social, he has released several videos outlining his policy positions, including protecting Social Security and Medicare. Trump's speeches hit many of the same notes as those from his prior campaigns, such as criticizing illegal immigration in China. Though this time, he also took aim at transgender issues and the teaching of critical race theory, or CRT. Trump, who is facing five ongoing criminal and civil investigations related to his conduct as a private citizen and his efforts to overturn the 2020 election, also devoted a small portion of each speech Saturday to repeat his highly controversial claims that the 2020 election was stolen from him. All right, brace yourself, Eric. We have some political narratives, starting with the Democratic narrative from CNN. It's dumbfounding that someone who inspired an insurrection just two years ago is running to return to office and actually garnering any support. However, the fact that Trump's 2024 campaign has had a low-energy rollout could be a sign that his continued lies about the 2020 election, not to mention the damage those claims did to Republicans in the 2022 midterms, have cost him dearly. And he could be ripe for a challenge from other potential GOP nominees. As we look at the pro-Trump narrative coming from Breitbart, Trump is as popular and important to the GOP as ever. It would be silly to spend big money on large rallies this early in the race. So instead, the former president has posted policy videos on social media and is now slowly beginning to hit the campaign trail. The GOP knows there's no separating Trump from the policies the party loves, so it'll get behind him 100% as the campaign rolls along. And backing that up with a nerd narrative from Metaculus, this one says there's a 35% chance that Trump will win the 2024 presidential election if it is Biden v. Trump, according to the Metaculus prediction community. Utah bans gender reassignment health care for transgender youth. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by NPR Online News, The New York Post, Daily Caller, and CNN. Utah's Republican Governor Spencer Cox on Saturday signed a law banning transgender surgeries and hormone treatments for minors who have not yet been diagnosed with gender dysphoria. The GOP-controlled state legislature began considering the bill on January 17th, just two days after the government session opened, with Cox signing it one day after it was sent to his desk. The hotly debated bill was sponsored by Republican State Senator Michael Kennedy, who argued that gender-affirming procedures lack sufficient research, and are radical and dangerous, while fellow GOP State Senator Daniel Thatcher worried that the measure could potentially ban life-saving care for trans youth. The bill also calls on the Utah Department of Health and Human Services to conduct a systemic review of the medical evidence regarding hormonal transgender treatments, which Planned Parenthood defines as either injecting feminizing, estrogen, or masculinizing, testosterone, hormones. At least 18 states are reportedly considering equivalent bills targeting reassignment health care for transgender youth. 
Thank you, Scott, for the facts. Let's look at the spins. A left narrative is the first one coming from the ACLU. Cox has ignored the warnings of medical organizations, civil rights activists, and the families of transgender youth. This is a horrifying violation of the rights to privacy and life-saving health care. Claims of protecting vulnerable youth with these laws ring hollow with those who know these children best, their parents and doctors. And we have a right narrative spin from the Federalists. The science is far from settled on this topic and its consequences. Even the left's own studies show that hormone treatment provides no mental health benefit for boys and very little benefit for girls. Depression and suicide and depression rates are so high among these children because they lack real therapeutic care and nothing will change until the medical establishment puts the truth over political brownie points and profits. New Zealand braces for flooding from Second Atmospheric River. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, New Zealand Herald, Axios, Guardian, CNN, and Forbes. Residents of New Zealand's largest city, Auckland, are preparing for more heavy rain this week, following its worst downpour on record Friday, which left at least four people dead and some 350 in need of emergency accommodation. Meteorologists have warned of a second atmospheric river overnight on Tuesday as rain could amount to four to eight inches. The Auckland region has received 769% of the average January rainfall and 40% of what the area would normally receive in a full year. The floodwaters in Auckland prompted the declaration of a state emergency on Friday. As 11 inches of rain fell, the Auckland airport was forced to postpone flights as the floodwaters swamped portions of the terminal causing travel disruption. In addition to the flooding, residents of the Auckland area have been trapped and isolated by numerous landslides and fallen trees that blocked access to roads leading in and out of the area. Rainfall on Friday was equal to an entire summer's worth of rain in Auckland, making it the city's wettest day ever. The north of the country's northern island receives more rain than normal during La Nina climate cycles. A similar atmospheric river event occurred less than one month ago in California with a deluge and mudslides killing at least 19 people and damaging homes and infrastructure. Thanks for those facts, Eric, on this meteorological disaster of a story. We have a pro-establishment narrative from The Guardian. New Zealand and its people have already seen the carnage that climate change can bring. In response to the frequency and magnitude of these events, New Zealand has released its first national plan designed to protect against climate-catalyzed events. While there is tremendous work to be done, this plan and its framework are a new beginning and a step in the right direction. An establishment critical narrative is coming from the conversation. While plans are a step in the right direction, New Zealand's decades-old stormwater system is outdated and can't handle the climate of today. It's necessary to make brick-and-mortar investments in bigger drains and larger pipes while also creating a more spongy surface environment to reduce catastrophic flood risk. Global warming puts more water vapor in the air, so real construction-based solutions need to begin now. And Narrative C comes from Financial Times. It's easy to dismiss any extreme weather event as a consequence of climate change, but in reality, they're usually influenced by a myriad of factors that have nothing to do with it. More research is needed before we can establish any direct causal link between the two. 
Two years ago, my basement completely flooded. It was just water pouring in like like a waterfall into the from the windows. It was crazy. Was anyone down there? Did you have to lower a basket with a thing of lotion in it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It really wasn't fair to the person I keep down there. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, with that much water, I did save on moisturizer. You know, that, that wasn't the issue. Yeah. Right. Our final stories from Australia as officials hunt for a missing radioactive capsule. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Independent, Axios, BBC News, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post. Western Australia's Department of Fire and Emergency Services has announced that a radioactive capsule containing cesium-137, a material used in gauges for mining in the resource-rich region of the country, went missing during transport between Newman and Perth. The mining company handling the transport, Rio Tinto Iron Ore, apologized on Sunday for causing an alarm, adding that it is fully supporting the relevant authorities and has initiated an investigation. Rio Tinto picked the capsule up in the remote Pilbara region for transport to a storage facility roughly 870 miles, or 1,400 kilometers away, in the state capital of Perth. Western Australia is more than 975,000 square miles, or 2.5 million square kilometers large, and is sparsely populated with 75% of its 2.7 million residents living in Perth. The company said the capsule, which may have gone missing as long as two weeks ago, is just 0.24 inches long by 0.31 inches wide, and may have gotten lodged in the tire of a vehicle on the road. Authorities are worried someone may pick the capsule up and become exposed to radiation, which can burn and sicken those who touch it. Special equipment to allow the detection of the capsule from a moving vehicle is now being used. Authorities have not closed National Highway 95, though they have marked their incident map red with radioactive symbols as a warning. Specialists are also focusing on strategic sites along the route, particularly in high population areas near Perth. Thank you for the facts of that story, Scott. Narrative A is coming from Sky News. Because the use of these radioactive capsules is quite common in a wide variety of scientific endeavors, the carelessness of this transportation team is remarkably concerning from an occupational health and safety perspective. The written process for transporting toxic materials is ironclad, and there is no excuse for any person or company to put the public at risk like this. And Narrative B comes from CNBC. Though the buck stops with the company in charge, this was a very unfortunate and unusual mistake made by a third-party contractor. Rio Tinto is working thoroughly alongside government authorities to find the capsule and return the region to a state of safety as soon as possible. Industrial accidents happen on occasion and all measures are being taken to rectify the situation. What my dad used to do if we lost the remote control too many times was tape it to a big board. Maybe they should have done that with his pill. <laughs> Definitely. I think they should just kind of keep their eyes open for that DeLorean flying around. Yeah, the uh, cesium creates 1.21 gigawatts yeah, of electricity. Exactly. Yeah, Yep, I, th- I think you're right. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, January 31st, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.